I'm Paul DeGarabedian, Senior Media Analyst for Comscore with my newly relaunched podcast, Many Screens, Big Picture, and I'm honored today to have on the program David Stahl. David Stahl is an award-winning composer who studied at the University of Southern California Thornton School of Music. He then continued on at USC to complete their scoring for motion pictures and television certificate program. How perfect is it that David is on this podcast with that certificate under his belt? David, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. You make me sound like I really did a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> you did. I mean, it's all here on the page. I think it's awesome. Yeah. But I want to go back to the earlier part of your schooling and this time you had studying at USC. And I know you had an orchestra piece that was uh, well-regarded and selected for something very cool. You want to talk about the name of the piece and what happened with that orchestral piece? Man, taking me back to my college days, I was a sophomore in college uh, at the Thornton School of Music studying classical composition. And um, every year they had a concert called the New Music for Orchestra Concert. And from the first year, I went to the first one and they had all kinds of incredible works. But they were all seniors in the program or they were graduate students. And so I was writing an orchestral piece and my teacher pushed me to enter it in. And I was thinking, oh, at least, you know, I'll get it in front of the professors and that'll be cool. But they picked it to be on the concert and to end the concert, which was really exciting for me. And uh, my parents flew out and got to hear that, too. And I learned so many great lessons of what not to put in your orchestral pieces based on how the rehearsals went. And they were upset at me, cursing my name for all the, the stuff I tried to put in there. And you won an award for that, correct? Not for that piece. Uh, just being on the concert was award enough, but I did get a scholarship uh, awarded. It was the Alice and Joe Harnell Film Scoring Scholarship when I was in the grad program. How old were you at this point? Grad program, one year after I graduated, so I would have been about 23, 24. That's most impressive, I would say. Oh, thank you. Where did this notion to then go from the Thornton School, but continue on in this scoring for motion pictures and television. Was that something you always wanted to do? Or did you open up the catalog and go, holy crap, there's a certificate for scoring movies and television? That's actually why I applied to USC in the first place. I started wanting to write music for movies about the time I started wanting to write music. And so as I got into applying for colleges, I thought, well, what schools let you study that. And there weren't really any undergrad programs, but USC had this supposedly great program. So I applied there only wanting to go there because I wanted to go to that grad program. So I waited four years to be able to, to do the thing I wanted to do. That's really cool. You were laser focused on that. What was it in your early years of picking up instruments or your love of music, developing your talent? When did it click in your head did you just love TV and movies? Did you hear scores from great films that inspired you? Was it a combination of both just loving movies and loving music and just finding a way to meld those two things or those two passions together? The short answer is that it was a singular moment when I saw Crimson Tide with music by Hans Zimmer. I'm not kidding. We were watching that movie. The music was so amazing. At that time, I had just started listening to Led Zeppelin. I was getting into rock music and just having fun listening to that because my dad played guitar. And I heard that score and I was like, 
this is basically rock music for an orchestra. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And that's what I wanted to do. So that was a big aha moment for you. The light bulb went off. And Hans Zimmer, oh my God, the career, the body of work that he's had is absolutely astounding. But I, I want to follow on that a little bit. You know, when you talk about Led Zeppelin, a lot of the arrangements of their music and Jimmy Page, obviously a producer extraordinaire, often he is overlooked for that. The arrangements, if you listen to the early Led Zeppelin albums from the late 60s, have a punch and a low end to them and dynamics that other albums at the time really didn't have. Maybe Cream had albums like that that sounded like that. Maybe those two things came together for you, just hearing that, you know, Led Zeppelin, which is so dynamic, and then orchestra, which is also when we talk about dynamic range and the dynamics of music. Yeah, they had such a variety. They could get kind of aggressive and be really intense and cool. And then they could be this beautiful, floaty folk kind of sound. And I thought that was really exciting when I was young. And then when I heard Kashmir that had the big orchestra on it, that's, again, kind of bridging the gap into film music. Like, just the more expansive that it got, the more excited I was by it. And I think that's really true. When you listen to... um like Led Zeppelin one, you have some, you know, ballads on there, like, babe, I'm going to leave you. And then dazed and confused. And just not only the dynamic range within the music, but the differences between each song is so incredible. And doesn't writing for TV and movies for you allow you actually an unlimited palette, depending on what the content of the piece is, right? There's movies that have periods of bombast on screen that you have to score to that. Then there's quiet moments, you know, movies kind of flow like music. There's those highs and lows. How does that work into your thought process? That's pretty much how I think of it. I'm probably going to contradict myself here, but it both gives you uh, boundaries and a limitless palette. So based on what the score needs, you know, if there's dialogue, if it's an action sequence, if you're trying to hit certain things, whatever you communicate, you know, with the, director and the production team, then you kind of know where you have to go. But the limitless part is that you get to decide the palette, you know, beforehand, you can't just all of a sudden break out accordion, you know, on a pirate ship or something (laughs) like that. But but you have that power, you know, I'm thinking of like Johan Johansson, and how he really created these incredible moods with weirdly alien sounding instruments that you've never heard before. And he kind of subverted a lot of the norms you usually hear with a big orchestral traditional palette. And he wasn't the first person to do that, of course. But what I mean is you have that power to just figure out what's going to make the emotional response the greatest and how can I get there? And then it doesn't really matter what the instrumentation is or what you think it's supposed to be. You, You have that freedom. Do you find that you prefer working with filmmakers who really don't know music? I mean, are are not technically trained or do you prefer working with filmmakers who know everything about music and are like micromanaging you? Is that good or bad or does it really depend on the project and the personalities involved? That is a great question. And I think what I like the most is just a filmmaker who's passionate. They have something that they've captured and they think it's going to connect with an audience. 
and they want it to be as good as it possibly can. And so they enlist great costumers and set designers and cinematographers, and then they get to you and they're like, we're so close. We want to release this and we're so happy with it. But we wish that this scene was a little funnier. So we need some funny music. or We, we want the audience to really cry here. I'm making a simplistic argument, of course, but like, but they're passionate about it. And that seeps into the work, you know, sometimes people are, they don't know as much about music. And so then in a way that can make it easier because they just use regular, easy to understand words. They're like, this is too sad, make it less sad. And so you understand what to do. You know, I don't think I've ever had a director micromanage or anything like that, but if they know a lot about music, then that can also help because then you have that extra language to kind of get together with. Right. There's a shorthand there that between musicians and also people who understand music that I think is that can be really helpful is your process. And, you know, I want you to give away any trade secrets here, David, but do you take that content home? Do you live with the movie? Do you watch it uh, on a soundstage first? Do they do you take it home with you and you you try to be inspired by the visuals? Do you do a temp track? What is your process? Do you use other music just to fill in the blanks till you you know, get inspired? How, how does that work? That is a very broad question. And I'm trying to think like uh, people do it very differently, you know, especially in the COVID age, you know, there are no soundstage meetings or anything. So I do always watch the movie the whole way through and I get it in two different ways. Usually they do have a temp track, you know, maybe not the whole score, but they'll say this kind of moment, we want this sound. From this score, you know that score, and we'll talk about it, you know. Or I've also had projects where there's no temp track at all. And of course, when you have the temp track, and usually they'll say they like it or they don't like it. We put this in here because we thought it would help, but do something different. Or they'll say, we love this track. We can't afford John Williams' score from Home Alone, but we want something that's like that. So you have to take all that into account. You watch the movie. Most importantly, you understand the emotional beats. What is it they're trying to say? You have to know the story as well as the director because they've seen it hundreds, if not thousands of times. And so you have to understand every little thing that goes in to the story so that you can play off them or comment on them or not say anything about them with the music. And so watching the movie helps and writing music helps. You just have to get in there. What I'll do is I'll pick maybe three or four scenes that I think are important moments. You know, I'm sure you know a lot of movies will have a theme, main theme for the movie or for this character or this emotion or something. I'll try to get those under my fingers because I'm a piano player and I'll play around with them and I'll get them in a place where I feel like this feels good to me. This is, I'm connecting with the movie and I like this. And so that's what I send it to the team. And if we get that sound dialed in, then the rest of it kind of falls into place. We kind of go from there. And then can you maybe explain for listeners, many of whom may know this, but, you know, I think of two components to the music. Well, there's more than that, but I think of like score and soundtrack, right? There's many movies that have both. I've There's movies that don't even have a score. They just use popular songs to create the mood. When you go into score for a movie, let's say, are you told, oh, we're planning to use, let's say, this Cat Stevens song here or does that not play into what you're doing? Do you just do your orchestral score 
with only a thought to that and then let them plug that in? Or are you apprised of the fact that there might be popular songs interspersed within the movie? And how do you deal with that? I'll take all the information that I can get. <laughs> you know, sometimes they know that ahead of time and sometimes they don't. I've I've worked on a TV show where we wrote a cue, you know, back and forth, notes approved, not approved. And then they replace it with a song. And so you just say, okay, cool. You know, you, you kind of got to go with the flow. Not to get too far ahead of us here, but one of the projects that I worked on with a guy I work with is the Zappa documentary coming out pretty soon. And so, of course, it, it's Frank Zappa. So his music is all over the place. But that doesn't mean we necessarily knew where it was going to go unless we could see it on screen. So that was kind of, you know, give and take. We write a cue here and it transitions nicely into this scene. And they say, oh, that's perfect. It works for this Zappa song. Or they would say the opposite, like, oh, shit, we're putting a Zappa song there. Can you end it 20 seconds earlier? And the cue is 25 seconds. You know what I mean? So you just kind of got to roll with it. You're literally working with a puzzle where the shape of the puzzle pieces are changing constantly. And there's a timeline of that TV show or movie that you're fitting that music and those music cues and those pieces, those orchestral pieces, let's say, too. And then on top of all that, you may have other songs interspersed. And then there's moments where there's no music, obviously, and and no songs. So how do you uh, kind of arrange all this in your head? I mean, it's mind boggling to me. It is. And to me, too. (laughs) But it's all problem solving the way I see it. Of course, I want to think of what I do as creative and, you know, ineffable. But in truth, it's all problem solving. And you write a piece of music for this scene because it needs a certain problem solved. We need to feel what she's going through. We need this to be funny or whatever. And then once it's out of your hands, it's a, a building block for them to deal with. And then they might say, ah, this scene's getting cut. We're going to use this cue over here. Or now we're going to put in a song. Or, you know, we don't want a song anymore. We need you guys to write something, you know. And so it's best not to try and figure out what the puzzle is going to be. Rather, just work on a piece here and give them a piece there and make sure it fits with the other pieces that you have access to. And that's all that you can really do. I mean, I think for most of us, we take it for granted all the work that goes into an orchestral score, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's so seamless and and by transparent, I don't mean we don't notice it because for me, a great score is another character in a movie or a TV show. It can be just as powerful as any character. In fact, I mean, Jaws is a famous and often overworked or overused example of where when they showed that film to test audiences without the famous you know, it didn't get the reaction that it did once that was in there. But on a more subtle level, I just think when you watch, and I know you've worked recently on The Queen's Gambit, which is, you know, at the top of everyone's list of one of the greatest shows ever, not just of this year. It has to be really, for you, particularly satisfying or gratifying to be part of a project like that. Yeah, absolutely. The music is a character, I think, but it's only a character, you know, if it's pulling the weight that the real characters are, that all the other elements are, you know, if you spend a hundred thousand dollars and record this beautiful score, no one's going to care about those details if it's not pulling you where it's supposed to pull you. It's not giving you the information that the characters work so hard to give you, that the writers work so hard to give you. Well, right, because you could actually change 
the feel of a movie or a scene. In other words, I used to have this theory and I, <laughs> I really don't know anything, but I used to think I could, if I wanted to, I could take any movie, any movie, let's say a comedy and turn it into a horror movie by virtue of a, of creating an orchestral score to that, you know, or vice versa, turn a horror movie into a comedy, turn a comedy into a horror movie because music is so powerful. We're often told how to feel or what to think and often misdirection like a magician uses is used with a score where they do a, like a big run up, like, Oh, the ominous music. And then suddenly something really funny happens and you get that aha moment or the point in the movie where the audience kind of, they're so intense and it's so it's building up and then they relax. I, I don't mean this way. It sounds like with the music, you're working with the filmmaker to really manipulate the audience in a good way. We want to be manipulated like that. How does that play into your thought process? And do you like that when a director or filmmaker tells you, I want to take this music in a different direction, unexpected direction? Yeah. I wanted to go back to something you said a second ago. The internet has proven you correct that they've recut. I mean, you've probably seen them. They've recut horror movies to look like comedies or comedies to look like horror movies. And, and so that's easily manipulation all day. You're exactly right. And then to your question, you know, I like that because manipulation does sound like a weird word, but that is why you see a movie in the first place, because you're manipulated <laughs> to believe things that that aren't there, you know, unless it's some a documentary or something. And so that's kind of fun. And, and that's part of the puzzle, the problem solving we spoke about, that they might say, hey, we're going to show something in the first 10 minutes that the audience isn't really supposed to know. So don't mention it. You might see that and go, oh, there's the key that he's going to need to open the door later. And sometimes they'll say, we want to give a little mysterious thing so they know it's important. Or the opposite. We don't want them to suspect it at all. So it's kind of like being a magician. You get to divulge the secrets when you want to, working with the team, of course. Yeah, that's really cool to me. I think obviously in the early days of silent film, they would often have sometimes music a lot of times like ragtime piano and things like that it wasn't really a score per se it was just something to put on there because they didn't have you know before talkies yeah and what's really interesting to me about that period is that it's like we've come full circle because it used to just be one dude who would sit at an organ and they got more and more complicated with little instruments and other things and they would kind of do the entire score themselves and every performance was different because it was just whatever he did that night or whatever that guy did in the next city over where they played the film then it kind of went to a whole team you know in the 40s and 50s and they had all these guys working together not getting credit and and now we've kind of come back to one guy alone and girls too, which is amazing, working on a computer and just manipulating all the little bells and whistles to get a cool score. Well, can you imagine a world like if suddenly it's like uh, we had a power outage last night and you suddenly realize what your life is like without power. It'd be like <laughs> if suddenly movies had no music, people would flip out like it wouldn't even be the art form that it is because we've come so far with the music and you're part of that. What's up next for you? What's on the, the hit parade, so to speak, <laughs> for you coming up? 
Okay, sure. So, so as you said, Queen's Gambit is out now and people are really liking it, which is amazing, more than we could have ever hoped for. Uh, I think I also mentioned Zappa, the documentary, is just about to come out. I want to dive a little deeper, though, into both of those, because both the Queen's Gambit and the Zappa document, because I love music. It's a music documentary. I love those. Queen's Gambit, what did you do on that show? What was your part in the music? So it's called uh, Additional Music. So the, the composer is named Carlos Rafael Rivera, and he's a great guy. And I got in touch with him uh, three years ago, I think. And uh, we first worked on Godless together in the same capacity. So Additional Music means he's the composer. He writes the themes. It's his show. He does the work. But it's kind of understanding seven hours of TV. It's just so much work for one person to do. So additional music means I'll take his theme and put it over here. He'll say, I'm going to be writing this cue, but I want you to take, so we like one of the characters is Beth. So we had her theme. We'd put it over here. It's like an executive. He's the executive chef and I'm a sous chef. So he's saying I made the recipe and I'm busy entertaining the clients and I'm giving them the best steak because that's what I have time to make. But all the other diners need steaks too. So here's how to make it. And if you want to throw on your own spices, that's cool, too. And if you want to add some shrimp on top, you know, I love food and I love that analogy. <laughs> Thank you. That was brilliant. It's so true because I'm trying to think of what the analogy would be and I'm coming up blank. But that's so true, right? Because that is a long show. If you have many hours and you're editing, and again, talking about the puzzle pieces that make up the score, when do you lock your score if it's a work in progress. How does that work? <laughs> Almost never <laughs> is the answer. You know, especially on the Queen's Gambit and Godless, the teams were amazing. The editing was amazing. And to their credit, it started here and then it ended up here, which means there was lots of different revisions to the just the picture. You know, we did cues that we thought were going to be for scenes in episode two that ended up episode six. They ended up splitting episode six into six and seven. And then they take parts from one and put it seven into one. So that's even happening after the recording session. You, you know, you think you have everything approved and recorded and you put it in and then they edit it, you know, because then they have a screening and they say, you know what, they didn't like that scene. So we're going to chop that up. And there's not a whole lot we can do at that point, but we still got to keep keep plugging away. It's not over until it streams on Netflix or goes into the theater. Well, my analogy is it's like a 3D chessboard trying to do all that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to go there. But there is a real 3D chessboard, isn't there? I think I've seen one. Yeah, there is. I can't imagine. Good luck with that. <laughs> and then the Zappa documentary, is that about his whole life, his career? The Mothers of Invention, obviously it was Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, Dweezil and Moon Unit, Zappa. I mean, I know you maybe can't give anything away about it, but it's a documentary. How is scoring for a documentary different or is it not different than for a film uh, or TV show? That's a good question. That's the first documentary I've had the pleasure to work on. And it's the same and totally different at the same time. And especially because it's a music documentary, which... Yeah, I was going to say, that puts like extra pressure, doesn't it? Uh-huh. So we, we talked about it. The, the composer for that one is named John Purcell, uh, and I work for him. He, he's a great guy. And, and he was very smart. He said, this is Frank Zappa's music. It's amazing. It's frenetic. It's crazy. It's out there. So we need a score 
that punctuates the dialogue and the the interviews in a way that kind of gives you a break from Frank Zappa's music. I'm not sure you could apply this to other documentaries, but this is what we did for Zappa because we wanted you to be excited and entertained by Zappa's music. And then when Zappa's music was done, you could just listen to his stories about his life without having to pay attention to all the crazy stuff. Right. And again, I think in the best music documentaries, you notice it, but you don't. I mean, it, it's there. It enhances the experience and the storytelling of the documentary without overshadowing the music of the person that they are documenting in, in that film. So I think that's that's really important. I mean, I guess sometimes you have to be the sous chef and sometimes you're the, the chef de cuisine and, and you just... I love that you wear all these different hats and it must be really fun and dynamic and challenging and exciting to do what you do. I could go on talking to you for another hour. Can you tell us, David Stahl, where we can find you? What's your next project? All that good stuff. So my most current project is another documentary series airing on YouTube. It's called Bison Boys. Two episodes have dropped so far, and they're going to be dropping episodes probably every two weeks or so. And they're a great team, a great bunch of guys in Idaho, and they have several ranches of bison. And it's a story following the Ball family, uh, the two brothers, Brock and Brigham. And so I get to write expansive, fun, orchestral, and guitar kind of hybrid music and it's so much fun to me that's like a dream come true for you i'm sure yeah absolutely i'm also starting work on a uh, christmas movie called a fargo christmas story that won't be out for several months but that's exciting and even further out than that is a sci-fi a motion comic called survivor all three of those projects, I get to live in different worlds and write different kinds of music. And it's really exciting to be a part of that. I'm hopefully going to be updating my website with clips from the show or, or of the music, uh, which it's just my name.com, davidstall.com. There's really a lot of stuff been going on lately. I wasn't expecting to be so busy during the pandemic, but here we are. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true for a lot of people. I just, I want you to promise me that you'll come back on the podcast uh, in a few months when some of these projects have been released and we could talk more even just about your love of rock and roll music, let's say, and all the different instruments that you can play. And that makes me very jealous that you can do that. (laughs) And that'd be a, a fun episode. But David Stahl, Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. I got a musical education today. And uh, just thank you again for being on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I feel like the musical education doesn't stop for anyone. So I'm glad that I could be a part of this. Thank you so much. Thank you.